Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Akis Papantonis from the University University Medical Center Göttingen on this show. So we are now sitting like comfortably in front of the beautiful ATC in uh, Embel at the transcription chromatin meeting in 2022. So um, there might be a little bit of atmosphere in the background, so please excuse that. Hopefully it's not too much. <laughs> so, Akis, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you received your PhD from the National and Capodistrian University of Athens, Greece in 2008. You then moved on to do a postdoc at Oxford University in the UK. After that, you moved on to the University of Cologne, where you became junior group leader in 2013. And since 2018, you are professor of translational epigenetics at University, University Medical Center Göttingen in Germany. Sounds right. <laughs> so to start off this interview, I'd like to know, how did you get interested in biology in the first place? Um, I, I mean, admittedly, it happened by accident. So the you know all the good students when I was young, like, 100 years ago um they they all um they all wanted to become either doctors or lawyers so i i tried to become a doctor so you have this you know this general exam that everyone gives at the end of their of their high school years but i didn't make it i didn't make the cut for the medical school uh, and i i got into biology and my parents sort of insisted that i tried out And I actually liked it, and then I, I never went back. So this is how it all started. And the same applies to molecular biology. I, I wanted to be a, a comparative zoologist at the beginning. And, That sounds know, very <laughs> definitive and yeah, very concrete. You know, collect insects and find <laughs> out why one is... I, I thought that was so fascinating. And then, you know, we did a couple of lab practicals, and I discovered DNA and so on and so forth, and I became interested in it. Yeah. <laughs> so was this the same with your academic career? So did you plan like to do an academic career from the start or how did you end up in academia? No, I mean again, I you know, as a as a scientist in the in the life sciences, one shouldn't sort of believe in luck or whatever, but or fate, but it sort of happened by itself. So I was, you know, you need to do a diploma thesis to get your degree and I did one in a molecular biology lab and then One day, towards the end of of my of my tenure there, let's say, the head of the lab came and said, "So, are you staying for a PhD?" And sort of very casually, I said, "Sure," and I and, and I just stayed. So, it, it, not much thought came into that. But I think ever since I started my PhD, I knew that I wanted to do research in some capacity or other. Yeah, so coming to a science that centers around the rules that govern gene expression in response to developmental and extracellular cues and how genome architecture plays into this. So this is taken from your website. Yeah, true. <laughs> so let's start in the year 2010. There you asked the question whether active RNA polymerases track along their templates to produce a transcript or if it's the other way around. So what did you find there? Does it? So... I mean, this has been, you know, a highly cited uh, uh, manuscript, but also highly controversial. So th the idea was to, I should say that there is in vitro evidence of the RNA polymerase being to pull a piece of DNA, right? So if you mobilize the polymerase, it will pull whatever DNA you, you feed it. So it, it is possible. But the idea was that maybe it's not polymerases that sort of diffuse everywhere the nucleus is trying to find the target, but maybe they're concentrated into little clusters or hubs 
or factories as as we were calling them and I mean, I still am. And then the the sort of DNA has to find the right type of factory, uh, you know, that has the right type of transcription factors. And so it was relatively controversial in, in, in 2010, this idea. Of course, relative is always movement. Is, is, sorry, movement is always relative, I wanted to say. Um, but the idea that you have multiple polymerases in a cluster and then multiple DNAs will come in, get reeled through these polymerases and uh, get transcribed, I think has gained some traction. And all the recent advances talking about, you know, phase separation in the nucleus and uh, condensates, transcriptional condensates, what have you, um, is to some extent in that direction. Do I believe that there were faults in the sort of factory model? Sure, some things, given the technology of time, we got wrong. Are there issues with the condensate model similarly? And so the, the truth will always lie somewhere in between, I guess. So what would be like the anchors that, I mean, if... You say the one moves or the other. Is the other part anchored? Or is it like it's just not kind of moving in respect to the other? Or how do you think that that is defined? Or So if you have two RNA polymerases, each one transcribing a different piece of DNA, let's say from two different chromosomes or from two different parts of one chromosome, you can imagine that, and these polymerases are sort of stranded inside a condensate or on the surface of a transcription factor, oh, yeah, which okay. would be a, a mm -hmm. multi component large entity that's you know a couple of hundred nanometers across each polymerase will have to to, to reel in its template to transcribe and then relative to one another the templates are moving not the okay. polymerases i should also say and you know we'll probably touch upon this a bit later but in our effort in the lab back then to biochemically isolate these hubs or transcription factories um, we found that you need to cut them off the nuclear substructure, which means that they are somehow associated with stuff in the nucleus that keeps them keeps their relative position, perhaps to some extent. Right? They're not going to be mobile. Mm -hmm. They're of course going to be super dynamic, but of course they can be visited by stuff. That's how I see it, at least. Okay. Yeah. You then investigated this further and looked at what happens during transcription of a long GM and, and how this might be reconfigured. Um, so, what did you find there then? Yeah. So, so the idea was that, of course, if you know, if a, if a gene needs to to visit a site to get transcribed, then if it's a short gene, it sort of goes and then it gets reeled in for you know a very short amount of time and then diffuse away and can revisit and they get transcribed in a bursty fashion like we know genes do. But of course, it's a, if it's a very long gene. As the elongating polymerases have gotten, let's say, halfway through the gene, then there's a very long piece of chromatin that is sort of diffusing away. So what happens to that? And we found that, you know, the majority of time, that promoter that has now seen the polymerase escape and elongate, you know, is far down the, the gene body, that promoter can sort of diffuse back and associate perhaps with another polymerase in the same factory or hub or condensate or whatever you want to call it again. Um, And, and this would always have, let's say, the transcribed bit of the long gene and the promoter uh, uh, very close in, in, in 3D space most of the time. And we, we showed this, it was around 2012, I think, that it was published. And uh, soon after, also, Gerd Glober's lab made a very similar um, observation using now uh, an anchored enhancer onto a, a relatively long gene that is being transcribed. So, yeah. So would this then look different for like a very active gene than to a maybe not so active gene? Yeah, so 
it, it depends on what kind of very active gene you want to talk about. Yeah. So uh, there are very nice exceptions. So Irina Solovey, for example, had a very recent piece of work where they, she has a huge uh, thyroglobulin gene that is you know, expressed in these specialized uh, thyroid cells. And these are, it's very large, but it's also hugely transcribed. So, uh, and she could show that it forms a large loop decorated by lots and lots of RNA polymerases. Um, and of course, there it sort of makes sense, right? Because you want to load so many polymerases that you couldn't have them in one blob. It, it would be impossible. And this produces a very rigid chromatin. But you can also imagine another way of transcribing a gene very efficiently, which would be making it revisit a factory again or a condensate or what you want to call it multiple times over time so that it gets many, many bursts and then produces lots of RNA. So a topic that I, I was always very fascinated by is nucleosome positioning. Mm -hmm. And you also looked at this um, after TNF-alpha stimulation. And for this, you teamed up with Sarah Diermeyer. And she was already already part of this uh, podcast series in episode 40. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this was episode 40. And yeah, so we, we kind of talked about this briefly. But could you talk about what happens to nucleosome positioning after TNF-alpha stimulation? Yeah, so this was this was actually the uh, the first corresponding author paper out of my lab, and it was of course because of Sarah and of Gernot Lengst uh, in Regensburg, who was her advisor at the time. Um, so we thought that, of course, in order you know to turn on genes in response to any sort of stimulus and to do it quickly, you would need to reposition nucleosomes and so on and so forth. Um, and we did the you know very obvious experiment, hit normal human primary cells with TNF and just follow what happens to nucleosome positioning. Um, and of course, we saw the expected bit, which is that you know responsive promoters would open up uh, and you know moving off nucleosomes in, around the TSS, the transcribed TSS. So you didn't did uh, ataxic at that time, right? No, it no, wasn't no. available then. Correct. So uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the radar back then. So we did the, a classical MNA6. So we digested chromatin with microcochlear nuclease and just sequenced a lot to get nucleus and positionings. And uh, of course, you know, this can be uh, relatively fuzzy. But one of the main things that came out of that, and it was Sarah's analysis that did the trick, um, was that there were regions in the genome outside of uh, these genes that were sort of um, prepared very early on before NF-kappa-B, which is the main transcription factor responding to TNF, uh, before NF-kappa-B is even activated to enter the nucleus and bind chromatin quantitatively, these regions would open up. And many of these regions actually harbored alu elements. Mm -hmm. And it was known uh, from previous work, from example, Dimitris Thanos in, in, in Greece at the time, that alu elements have binding sites that highly, re some uh, subcategories, the alu S6 uh, to be precise, they have uh, uh, binding elements that resemble the, the consensus binding sequence of NFKLB. So they were sort of receiving positions for NFKLB to bind, and then they would presumably loop in into promoters and activate them. So the genome sort of prepares itself by repositioning nucleosomes to um, welcome uh, the transcription factor and then sort of direct it to, to the target genes. This is how we saw it at the time. So this is kind of like early like results in the sense that what you see nowadays if you do ATAC-seq then followed by RNA-seq that would like see first it opens up and then it gets transcribed right so kind exactly. of the same finding yeah so that, that there is you need uh, some sort of preparation of the chromatin landscape in order to have you know enough productive transcription 
So you then moved on and focused on active sites of transcription by developing a new method to analyzing RNA that is associated with the transcription factories that we already talked talk about. So what was the advantage of this method and what did it enable you to find? So this was um, on the back of what I described before. So in during my postdoc in, in the lab of Peter Cook, it was actually work headed by Svetlana Melnik at the time, um, where the idea was to biochemically purify transcription factories, because one way of proving something exists is if you're able to take it out of the cell and put it in a tube. Um, and this involved a, involved a, a rather intricate protocol, which I think is, is interesting to, to describe. Um, so you put cells in a buffer that is near physiological as regards salt mm -hmm. concentrations and pH and ATP concentration. So the cells are, are pretty happy in that buffer. Uh, and then you can isolate nuclei. Um, still native? Still natively, everything natively. There's no cross-linking anywhere. And then you use a native license buffer, the details of which are, are not important now, and you sort of break them open. Now, if you do that, nothing really happens in the tube, except you create a bit of a slime, let's say. But if you add group three caspases to this mixture, so caspases six, eight, nine, and ten, which, by the way, do not cut any of the subunits of RNA pol 2 mm -hmm. or most of the other polymerases, then you release something in the supernatant, which, of course, at the time, we had no idea what it was. So then Svetlana took these released complexes or parts of complexes from the supernatant, just ran them on a large 2D native gel, and essentially got three blobs. And then she could show that these three blobs were pol 1 pol 2 pol 3 so she had a way of isolating large fragments from transcription factors. We we went on to do mass spec on these and show that you know they are the right thing. So if you're able to do that, that was our rationale at the time, then you could just take these, that supernatant with these parts of factories, throw them in a tube, and if this whole factory idea is at all correct, you should get nascent RNA profiles because this is where nascent RNA is supposed to be produced. So essentially what we did is we replicated the factory isolation protocol and uh, through it in trisol. Isolate RNA and sequence it together with Carson Ripper from, from Heidelberg. And I, we were amazed to see that we recovered beautiful nascent RNA profiles. And um, this was at the time where people were using, you know, run-on assays, which of course are, were far more complicated back then, like GrowSeq. So we still use what we call factory seq or nascent RNA factory seq uh, in the lab routinely to look at nascent RNA profiles. And it's just that. Yeah, what is then the difference to, I mean, obviously, <laughs> the name and, 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 and that the, the RNA is still um, like associated to the polymerase, but what is then the exact difference to mRNA sequencing and this kind of sequencing? Like, because you, yeah, what is the difference then? So you only, um, you only throw it in triazole a small uh, subset or subcompartment of the cells, right? You've thrown, actually, in, in the process, the way we did it then is in the process of isolating this, you actually get first the cytoplasm because you isolate nuclei, so you get your mRNAs. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, okay. And then you get whatever comes out of the nuclei, which are the factories, so you get your nascent RNA. But there's a step before that where you've chopped out chromatin that is not associated to anything, is not stranded somewhere. And if you take the RNA out of that, you can also map chromatin-associated RNAs. Oh, and in that paper, we sort of mapped all the different subfractions in one go. And, and we could show that they're very different to one another. 
Oh, that's that's very interesting to see. Yeah? So then you moved on and started to focus more on genome confirmation. Uh, what you then did was to develop three C without the crosslinking. Uh, why do did you feel that that was necessary in the first place? And what did you find using this new technique? So that was we started trying to do that back in 2014, 15, and and there was a big discussion at the time, and it was generated by a very nice piece written by Giacomo Cavalli and uh, Sergei Razin, saying. Well, you know, formaldehyde cross-linking uh, in vivo, in cells, is, is very much a, a black box. And we do use it, you know, indiscriminately across molecular biology. But what if, right? Um, so we thought, is there a way of doing this without uh, cross-linking? And people had tried some things like, you know, putting uh, uncross-linked cells in agarose plugs, Uh, but these were very inefficient in the sense that, you know, you lose lots of material when you try to purify and you have tons of agar and so on and so forth. So what we did is we again went back to this factory idea. So if you have cells that are um, in a physiological buffer, so you would presume, and, uh, you know, back in the day, in, 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 the, in the mid-80s, people have tested these cells for transcriptional comp competence using run-on assays in vivo, and they were, you know, they could run on very efficiently. So they were in theory, transcriptionally active. Um, you can hit them with TNF and they will respond, for example. So we thought, you know, if they are responding properly to transcription, they should be folded properly. So we could just do the 3C protocol like you would without any sort of cross-linking and, and see what happens. Now, I want to make a small parenthesis here. So obviously, our technique is based on the concept of chromosome confirmation capture on 3C, which was uh, introduced by Job Decker in, in 2002. But as Job also uh, very often says, there was a paper in science as well. So the 3C paper was in science in 2002. There was a paper in 1993 in science again um, from a guy that was a prof an assistant professor at the time in Vanderbilt University, and I'm, I'm forgetting his name now, but it will come to me. Um, so they managed to do essentially a native 3C back in the day, showing a very short-range looping, admittedly, between a regulatory element and the promoter of um, a, a, a responsive gene, a, a, um, a hormone-responsive gene. So they had a looping, I don't know, a loop of, I don't know, 10KB or something, cutting chromatin and then putting it together already 1993, right? Cullen, Cullen et al., uh, Science 1993. So this, you know, the, the idea that you could do it without cross-linking was sort of already there. So what we did is we just cut very briefly with an enzyme in this physiolo near-physiological buffer, And then we just washed away whatever didn't want to stay inside our, um, uh, you know, very happy physiologically uh, swimming nuclei uh, and added ligase to the mix. And this very short, so our cutting was 30 minutes. Our ligation was an hour and a half or so. Uh, and then we just took that DNA and started doing 3C, 4C, high C. And we found that although the maps look very different because, you know, you don't have crosslinks, so you don't get all the secondary information, that is not noise. In, in, in the high C, it actually has some meaning for the, for the most part. Uh, we didn't get that, but we got focal interactions that were the right ones, you know, CTCF, CTCF, enhances promoters, and so on and so forth. Um, of course, the question is, you know, so what, right? Okay. And I think, I think that paper had uh, one big finding that I'm, I'm particularly fond of, um, being biased, of course. <laughs> um, and that is that when we use that, 
to do, let's say, 4C, we found that the contacts did decay with distance and they sort of stop at the boundaries of the topological domain that high C had found. So we view this as sort of native evidence of actual insulatory properties of you know domain boundaries, CDCF boundaries, and so on and so forth. So without having to use any cross-linking, we show that these topological restrictions indeed hold true in a native environment. And I think that that's quite important. So all the, I mean, it's like in physics, if you measure something, then you will disturb the system and it will have some effect on the system. So do you think that doing it natively and handling all those things would introduce also a bias to it? Or is it like that the formaldehyde cross-linking is a bigger bias than what you normally would do? Or the handling is any anything the same, then it, it doesn't matter? No, I think mishandling something, of course, that is not cross-linked might pose more dangers, of course. Um, having said that, whenever we had, and we've actually published native 4Cs, because that works very, very well, very often, uh, it's also visually very close to the crosslink um, forces, so it's easy for people to sort of cope with what it looks like. Um, I think it it, it really uh, it shows that when, even if you crosslink, you really don't get actual biases. They they both look quite similar, and because they are so different in nature, I think we can sort of yeah. semi safely say that they are okay, both of them. Uh, you then also looked how. I mean, you, you went further into the cro uh, chromosome and chromatin and genome organization field and also looked at senescence. And this is also something I worked on, so I'm naturally uh, also interested in that. So how does the 3D structure of the genome contribute to cellular senescence and which factors are involved in this process? Yeah, so we, we thought, I mean, Cologne was and is still um, um, a center for aging research. So this sort of motivated us to start looking. And senescence is an attractive system because... Um, you know, I had in my head this idea of oncogenidu senescence that has this very dramatic reorganization in these large heterochromatic foci described by Mashashi Narita in the early 2000s. Um, so we thought, you know, people have looked at this, but maybe we should look at replicative senescence, which is also something that, you know, occurs in vivo, right? So we took three different models and did high C to them. Um, I should say that, first of all, uh, the differences are less pronounced that than what we expected. Uh, so um, difference in genome organization? Yes. Uh, and so you didn't see spectacular rearrangement of domains or spectacular loss of compartments or switching of compartments and so on and so forth. But the big surprise came when we, um, by mistake, uh, did Obviously. An, uh, <laughs> as always, did an imaging experiment. And I, I should say that the imaging experiment was actually done with an active motif antibody that we've been using uh, ever since. So we just essentially took antibodies that we had in the fridge that were sort of related to genome organization. And, you know, major player that is is CTCF. So Anne, my postdoc at the time, Anne Zirkel, um, she stained young cells and senescent cells for CTCF. And she found this remarkable phenotype that in the replicative senescent cells, you don't see it in other senescent types, by the way, um, CTCF makes these very large clusters. And this was, this was really striking. So we went on to characterize that and find who's the culprit for this. And we actually found that there's um, a high-mobility group box protein, so an HMGB protein, HMGB2 namely, that uh, is programmed in senescence to leave the nucleus. And upon its loss, CTCF rearranges in 3D and gives us these clusters. Now, 
This was remarkable for two reasons. The first reason is that HMGB2 and CTCF do not bind any nearby positions in the genome. So the two of them are never next to one another. Uh, HMGB2 or one? Two. 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 So if you, you know, if they're not, and, and if you pull one down, you don't get the other. So, so it's they, mutually exclusive. Exactly. They, they don't seem to associate this, don't seem to talk to one another on the protein level, on the chromatin level. So it was strange how just a simple knockdown of HMGB2 was enough to give rise to these foci. I should say that we're still a bit puzzled about this. So we, we have follow-up work that explains some of it, but not all of it. The other uh, pretty amazing thing was that HMGBs are amazingly abundant within cells. So you have about one HMGB for every 10 nucleosomes in the genome. So we're talking huge numbers. And a senescent nucleus has zero. So you really flood out a really abundant, strong chromatin binder. And in its absence, these large... Uh, CTCF foci form. Um, of course, we did then high chip. We showed new loops forming, and these new loops of CTCF predominantly form across positions that were previously bound by HMGB2. So somehow the presence of HMGB2 was a sort of barrier for these, and then in its absence, they they, they start forming and they are larger in size and so on and so forth. We've now actually. Um, looked more into this we've done you know micro c and we've done lots of biochemistry and functional experiments and hopefully you know in a year or two we'll be able to have a you know a concise story of how this actually works in 3d so I've, uh, in the research i also found that you looked at hmgb1 this, mm -hmm. that that's why my question yeah. um so what is the difference between hmgb1 and 2 in in, in that sense then and uh, what did you find about the function of hmgb1 in a sense so um First of all, I should say that the two proteins are 85% alike on the uh, amino acid level, so you would expect them to have very similar, if not you know, partially overlapping functions. They don't. They bind very different sites in the genome. Uh, if you remove them from a cell, so if you, you know, knock down B2 or B1, you get very different effects. And it seems like, and also uh, the, the similarities, of course, B1 is also removed from nuclei in order for you to have senescence. So... It seems like the senescent transcriptional and structural phenotype is a combination of losing B2 and B1. So when we looked at, at, at B1, uh, we actually found that it doesn't uh, bind close to the boundaries of, of, of domains, which was the case with B2, but it actually binds within domains. And then by a combination of genomics and, and, and modeling of the genome, we could find that um, there's a very strange interplay. And the interplay goes something like this. You have... Um, domains, topological domains that are rich in bound HMGB1. And they tend to be together in neighborhoods in 3D space than topological domains that don't have B1 bound to them. And these particular domains that have B1 in a young, normal, proliferating cell, they also tend to have inside them pro-inflammatory genes that in, uh, or what they're called SASP genes, so senescence-associated secretory phenotype genes, that are inactive in a, in a proliferating cell. And then you lose B1. In our case, you can either knock it out or wait for senescence to kick it out. Uh, so you lose it, and what happens is in these TADs, you have the activation of these pro-inflammatory genes, which are very important for inducing senescence in a paracrine manner, together with B1, which is itself part of the SASP and gets secreted. So there's this very 
intricate secretome to 3D general organization uh, coordination that is pretty fascinating that has you know evolved to make sure that I lose the protein, which I use as a signaling molecule, and at the same time its loss induces a transcriptional response, which is or has been specially preempted and and it works in a coordinated fashion it, it it's it's pretty amazing yeah. actually uh, it's very very nice to see all those connections coming together and actually grasping those connections right i mean o- oftentimes you don't see those things that happen in different areas of the cell and different like yeah i think b1 is very very specific to that and you know on top of all of this it's actually a bona fide rna binding protein so it also binds some rnas in clip which are not the same rnas that it sort of come from the genes that it binds on chromatin. So it's a completely different repertoire. But then these are also regulators of the SASP. So it seems to have this multifaceted role that controls how the SASP will turn on at lots of different levels. Yeah. And it's just you know a single protein doing this. It's, it's very fascinating. Yeah. I, I agree. So senescence cells do no longer divide. So mm-hmm. it's kind of they don't enter mitosis again. Yeah, maybe you can make them do it again, but that's a whole <laughs> different story. But you also looked at chromatin organization at the exit of mitosis, and this was very recent work. Um, so which factors play a role in this process, and how is chromatin reorganized after mitosis? Yeah, so this is um, this is kind of a success after failure story. So we never set out to look at this particular transition. So um, yeah, It seems that it's kind of different than the other things that you were looking at. Exactly. So... I've had a, because of the early work that we talked about, you know, factories and RNA polymerase and how it could organize loops. If you, if if one looks back in the last sort of five, six years, uh, there's lots of work on 3D genome and how it's structured by CTCF and cohesin, CTCF again and again and again. And, you know, rightfully so, because they do pretty important things. But then when people have tried to look at transcription, they usually come to the conclusion that, you know, if you have it or not, the 3D genome doesn't really care. And I've always had a thing about this. I thought, no, this can't be right. I mean, this is a huge complex. It's really active. It can translocate DNA. It has to do something. So we set out, we got a cell line from the Mashima lab in, in Japan where you could inducibly deplete RNA polymerase too. And we wanted to see whether, you know, removing it without killing the cells would allow us to see changes in 3D genome organization. So we coupled this to high C. And if we do this in an asynchronous cell population as they grow in the dish, we didn't see anything, which was very frustrating. So then we thought, okay, uh, let's try a scenario where you have, you know, compact mitotic chromatin, and then it has to unfold and refold into its interface 3D genome confirmation that we look at by high C. What if we don't have polymerase at that transition? And we know that in that transition, there's a short window right after mitosis where you have a hyperactivation of transcription um, as a sort of cue that the genome goes back into this uh, interface uh, situation. Meaning that the polymerase would do the job? Of kind of refolding or unfolding it. At exactly. Least. So do something at least in a coordinated fashion. So if you take that away, would that affect structure was our question. And uh, to our uh, delight, it did. So we, uh, we synchronized the cells. We removed the polymerase during mitosis when it's really not used that much. And then as they come out of mitosis and we sort out G1 cells to do high C, we actually saw very strong effects. Having said that, we started off to put you know, all the weight on the polymerase too. But clearly, um, the fact that you don't have RNA polymerase during this transition actually affects how well or where 
you load cohesin onto the genome to form loops. So, of course, we sort of indirectly went back to cohesin. So, there seems to be a sort of um, connection between having active RNA polymerase on the genome, but also it somehow being involved in the recruitment and loading of cohesin uh, onto the genome. And, you know, no one really knows where loading takes place at the beginning of G1 so to sort of reload cohesin mm -hmm. and make all the loops through extrusion and, and so on and so forth. I, I want to make a, a, a slight parenthesis again here and, and say the following, you know, because I'm here at this meeting talking about this exact thing, because now we've sort of given up on high C and are using micro C. And using that, we can actually see that even in our interface cells, where we thought nothing was happening, loads of things, loads of loops rely on, on RNA polymerase. It's just that high C did not have the power to see them. Because they're of the resolution? Yes. So you, we can now resolve transcription-based loops or enhancer promoter, 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 and so on and so forth. And these are really sensitive to not having the polymers there, as one would have imagined, right? So intuitively, this is what one mm. would expect. So during my research in preparation in this interview last night, I found two papers on BioArchive that are not yet published in print journals, mm -hmm. let's say. Yeah. Um, those focus on enhancer-promoter interactions and their relationship, as you just uh, explained, to rna pol 2 and CTCF. And maybe we can tie this together with my usual question at the end of the scientific part of the interview in asking, what is your plan for the next five years? So what is it that is currently like in the pipeline to be published in print journals? And what is then your like uh, vision for the next five years, uh, let's say, for the next grant? So... One thing is what I just described, right? So the preprint that you, you talk about is, uh, you know, how by using micro you can now find particular 3D genome features that are, you know, absolutely reliant on RNA polymerase 2, and they actually have different responses when you take them out, and how the classical CTCF anchored loops are actually in a constant antagonistic relationship with the act of transcription and the loading of actin polymerase. So this is one that is currently actually under review. Um, and we have the mechanistic follow-up of these senescence-induced CTCF clusters, which we think is, is also mechanistically interesting because they, uh, we have absolute evidence now that they form on the basis of phase separation, which is on the one hand trendy, but you know, on the other hand, it is absolutely true that it contributes to the formation of clusters and bodies inside cells. Um, it's more difficult to say what they do, right? Of course, they cluster them. I mean, they have a particular role, and this is what is coming next. And uh, another big thing that we're doing is we are trying to exploit 3D genome organization in cancer. Because, of course, uh, patient cancer specimens, so be it cells from tumors uh, for which we have, for example, glioblastoma patient cells, or uh, organoids derived from uh, patient tumors, um, they have copy and structure variants. It's one of the hallmarks of cancer that you, know, you have lots of copy number variants, lots of structural variants that give rise to essentially different puzzles of chromosomes. And this is a very interesting sort of uh, puzzle to solve, and you can solve it by high C. So with a high C experiment in such a cell, you can kill two birds with a stone. You can map the 3D genome organization, but also identify structure and copy number variants and essentially correct for them. So find an inversion or a deletion or a duplication and create de novo a scaffold that is patient-specific. So this is, in a sense, personalized medicine for that particular patient that carries those particular SVs. And we have now a large cohort of such high-C data from glioblastoma patients. We have 30 of them. And each single patient has a completely different genome to the next. 
we don't get two patients with the same, you know, not even, I don't know, 2% of the structure and copy number variants are the same. And this, of course, means that you have different regulations because you form different neo-domains and neo-loops that are patient-specific, and it creates patient-specific gene regulation and hopefully patient-specific dependencies on particular overexpressed or underexpressed genes. With, you know, with some luck, one or two of these might be druggable, and then you can really do personalized medicine. So this is what we are sort of heading to, hopefully. Which would be, a, but if you do a high C experiment every time, this would be very expensive, right? It is. You don't need remarkable resolution, so you don't need you know two billion reads. So we do this with four hundred million reads, roughly, and this is more than enough for these. Uh, still, it's not cheap. Um, sequencing will become cheaper, and you know the moment it has become cheaper yeah, already. already, and it, it become more. I, I hope, and I, I think. And of course, once things become important for clinical practice, then uh, yeah. you can also justify cost, I guess, to some extent. So when we started this interview in, like, I think 2000, 2010, ataxic wasn't even around. Mm -hmm. And now we were we are talking about micro-C and all those fancy methods. So what is the difference in methods that you are currently using and that you used like five years ago and 10 years ago? So... Although I'm generally conservative with these things, I think, and I, I should also admit, you know, publicly here in, in the podcast that I didn't believe that microsy would work in large genomes. I thought it's okay for yeast, but it's never going to work. Um, I think that you know, microsy is one big thing that we're starting to really believe in. Uh, the same way that you know, us and many others have now believe in nascent RNA sequencing. What do you mean in believing? <laughs> is it like a more a feeling, or oh, is no, there no, no, like no, no. evidence? I, I mean, believing means willing to spend the money to do it because it gives us data that are more meaningful for the questions we want to ask. Uh, I, don't, I think both high c and micro-C work well, uh, but they just address uh, in different ways uh, different features of, of the 3D genome. Um, what I would like to see is uh, you know, long-read sequencing with really high throughput, so you could do some of the 3D genome assays at that level with very long reads and then have single molecules with multiple loops or multiple features on them. And it's it feels like this is also coming. Mm. So I think this would be the major differences right now. So to finish off this interview, I have two more rather general questions. Mm -hmm. The first one, and I think there might be a nice answer to that already after feeling, did you at one point of your career face a situation that you've reached a dead end and did not know how to proceed to answer the questions you wanted to answer and how did you then overcome it? So, I, I guess the answer to that is every day and never, uh, because it, it, in a sense, we, you know, science, and I, I tell this to my PhD students from sort of day one, is, is a sort of row of, co of constant frustration, smaller or larger, right? And you just need to learn how to cope. And very often you design carefully an experiment, you really like it, and, and then you have others that you really place no hope in, and then they give you this, you know, spectacular result. Uh, like for the CTCF clusters, for example, I was my response was, yeah, sure, just go and image them. Nothing's going to be there. And then she came back with these pictures. And I just couldn't believe them. Um, so it's it, it, it has never been one moment. It has been lots of ups and downs nonstop ever since I started my postdoc, more or less. Um, it's also part of the enjoyment, right? So the, so the small windows of joy are what sort of erase the previous... Uh, disappointments and prepare you for the the ones that come ahead and this is how we deal with on you know day to day 
So in the last 40 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important finding? It might obviously be biased or something that we might have missed in this interview. I think, I think you know, you've, you've done a, a great work in, in covering lots of things. I, I want to, to talk about one thing very briefly because um, I find it very... So it's a, it's a sort of... Um, underdog hero that I also very often tell my students. So when I was a postdoc in Oxford, we had a, um, uh, we were give we got a grant to do lots of sequencing with a facility back then in the UK. So we just did lots of RNA-seq at the time. It was, at the time, RNA-seq was super fancy and it was expensive still, uh, not like today. So we did lots of it. And then uh, a friend at a, a department, he's now a professor in Oxford, Stephen Kelly, he analyzed that data looking for circular RNAs. Because they were just emerging, and we thought, oh, let's jump into the sea. Maybe there's something amazing. Um, and by looking into that data set, we constructed a one-figure paper, uh, which had essentially three panels. And the three panels showed that if you're a circular RNA emerging from any given exon in a huge amount of different data from human cells, then... You're more, the more circularized that exon or the set of exons, because you can have multi-exon circles, the more circularized they are, the more skipped by splicing are these particular exons. And you know, we, we found this in early 2014, and we thought, oh, isn't this very interesting? So if you want to circularize, you actually skip these, and then this part of RNAs, because they have in them very active splicing sites, will, form, will self-circularize and form a circle. And we, we made this one-figure paper and we sent it absolutely everywhere. And no one even sent it out for review. So we kept going. And at the time, science had this um, format that was called brief communications where they encouraged one, you know, one-figure uh, papers. So we kept sending it left and right. No one would review it. Uh, so we sent it back to a journal into which I was publishing my obscure research from my PhD, uh, a very good journal, very historical one, so Journal of Molecular Biology, which, you know, at the time had an impact factor that had, you know, really dropped and so on and so forth. It wasn't considered top in any way. But I, you know, I, I liked the journal. So we sent it there and it got accepted and it even made the, the, the cover of the figure. And this was in 2015, so it took us more than a year to publish. And this has now been cited more than 300 times. Uh, so, you know, it, sometimes it doesn't really matter if, you know, it's not really appreciated at that level, let's say, of peer review or editorial consideration or whatever. Um, some things just find their way. And this is, 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 is rather soothing to think of. Yeah, I mean, it will be the same maybe with the preprint service that we now have that it's, it's already communicated and looked at before it's even published in a print I really journal. hope so. I really hope so. I mean, we preprint everything that comes out of the lab. And generally, I find it very beneficial. Uh, you also show where you are. It's, yeah. it's your status quo. Yeah. Right. So thank you, Akis, for your time and for being on the show. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you. So please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, 
check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.